Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. My name is Mike Delisio, and as always, I'm joined with Sebastian Dennison. Hey, Seb. Hey, Mike. I feel like we've recorded so much lately and that you and I have had the opportunity to sit down with such awesome people. Um, we obviously continue the, the the means of having the ability to connect with people all over the place. And I couldn't think of a better example of that today, uh, given the fact that we are sitting down with our director of public affairs, as well as our clinical services manager. So um, one individual who's new to the podcast, another individual that for some of you who may have listened to episodes on USP 795, 797, or 800, gave a really good regulatory response, probably around 30 or 40 episodes ago. So it's been a while, but welcome back, Matt Martin. Hey, thanks thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's always great to have you um, on the podcast that provide our listeners such an amazing overview of what's happening within the regulatory climate. But today, our conversation is going to be centered around more or less advocacy. And on that note, we have the, the benefit of sitting down, like as I mentioned, with our Director of Public Affairs, and that's Amy Shank. So Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So what's, uh, what's going to be awesome about the fact that we are obviously sitting down, the four of us, um, we, we had Scott Brunner on our episode not too long ago, obviously his overall role as the CEO of APC and, and, and we, we discussed advocacy as a whole and how important it was for that specific organization to represent the voice of compounding pharmacies. Um, today is gonna be maybe a bit different. Um, lo- love to get a bit more insight into, um, Amy, specifically what you do for PCCA and, and how long you've been with the organization. Um, given the fact that you're not physically here in our Houston office, you're in a much, in a much more important area. And with that being said, gives you visibility um, and exposure to lawmakers, et cetera. So uh, give our listeners a bit better understanding of, of your background and, and your role at PCCA. Sure, Mike, happy to. Um, I joined PCCA as an employee in the summer of 2014 and had worked before that as their consultant for almost three years, was brought on board in a consulting capacity in 2012 when the legislative action really uh, picked up on Capitol Hill. Um, I real fortunate that for over 10 years, I worked in the, in the US Senate before that for the health committee, for the budget committee, um, and for the leadership in the Senate for about a year and a half there. So 10, about 10 and a half years total in the Senate is a bit about my background. This opportunity at PCCA, I feel like is uh, really in many ways about connecting the triad making sure that patients have access to the medication they need, that pharmacists can lawfully compound the medication and that physicians can prescribe. It sounds like a pretty simple concept, but once you start digging in, there are a lot of access barriers out there that, um, that can make that tricky and in some cases very limited with some current threats that exist that would eliminate access um, entirely. If, uh, if fully implemented, and we can talk more about that later. The cornerstone of our public affairs program at PCCA is um, 
educating lawmakers and helping our members educate and inform their members of Congress about their pharmacy, their practice, the patients they serve, and really their role in healthcare. Um, the main way, one of the main ways we do that is through the ACT Legislative Conference, which is a fly-in, a virtual fly-in this year, but an opportunity typically in the spring of each year for PCCA members to meet and talk with their lawmakers and staff about those very important issues. So as a pharmacist and as a sort of naive opinion, when we talk about advocacy, you know, aren't there people who do this? Like, aren't there big groups that take care of this in, in industry? And why are, why are we concerning ourselves with this? Sure, there are trade associations out there that um, step up in this capacity. There are coalitions. We work very closely and collaborate with our trade associations, the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding and the National Community Pharmacists Association. And for those of PCCA members who are listening now and who are members of APC or NCPA, thank you. Thank you for joining your trade associations and thank you for supporting them. Um, where I think in a situation with pharmacy and with compounding um, specifically where the legislative and regulatory portfolio is busy. There's a lot going on out there and we need more voices in the choir, right? So to the extent that we can leverage our, our voices and our resources and have more engagement, more educational outreach to the lawmakers, then we know that they will be more informed having heard from their pharmacists back in the state and district. And that's where we really try to come in and provide added support. And so as a pharmacist, how is my voice directly heard if we're going through these giant associations? Well, similarly, I, you can engage through their committee and policymaking process, through their legislative conferences. And what we have found and what we have seen is that it really is helpful to have multiple touches throughout the year with your lawmakers. So if you're participating in a, a conference with one of our trade associations, a legislative conference, it's helpful to come back a couple of times a year. I think that, you know, if you look at, if you look at situations personally, you know, if you want to grow a relationship, you have to invest in it, right? That's true for any relationship. And it's also true for relationships with your elected officials. If you show up once a year, read through your message points, it's gonna be hard to maintain that. So the multiple touch points into maintaining a relationship to investing in the relationship are really what's key. That can be accomplished by attending conferences through the trade associations, through PCCA's conference, following up and inviting the lawmaker or and their staff out for a pharmacy tour so they can see firsthand what you do. That is really, I think the way to leave the most lasting profession. But like any important relationship in your life, it has to be maintained, it has to be fostered and developed in order for it to really grow. Matt, um, I also wanna come back to you. Your role within the organization, being clinical services manager, obviously by default, the assumption is that you have the ability, the oversight to, to look after our amazing team of clinical services individuals. But your role goes beyond that. And, you know, I think it's so important for our listeners to understand where you come from and how you're involved as well in this capacity. Um, because I, I did touch on your regulatory information and your knowledge and 
how that's helped our membership overall. Um, but this is a, another passion of yours as well. And you, and you have a direct involvement in this field. So, so from your own perspective, what have you thoroughly enjoyed and, and how are you involved in this capacity as well? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, so I've been with PCCA a little over six years now. Um, before that, I was in practice. I was fortunate to come straight out of pharmacy school and go straight into a compounding practice, a compounding practice that had been uh, established for, for some time before I got there and working with the gentleman that had been involved in pharmacy and in compounding on a local, state, and national level and really got to uh, draw from his experiences and having an understanding of what had gone on uh, in compounding before I ever knew what it was and to understand, you know, how it had been regulated and what those perspectives were like uh, over time. And I, I think the, the thing I always go back to my sort of aha moment, the, the point at which the light bulb went on about PCCA and, and what its value was as an organization in this public affairs uh, side of the practice uh, was about estriol. Um, so I, gosh, I don't know how long that's been now, maybe 10 or so years ago now, that there was a, a challenge to whether or not estriol was going to continue to uh, be available uh, for use in compounding. It was gonna be a part of uh, patient treatment options. And at that time, there were a number of entities that said, you know what, we're just, mm, the, the challenge is too great we're not going to continue to offer estriol for patient care. Um, that was not the stance that, that PCCA took. PCCA says, no, you know, we think this is important for patient care. And PCCA went on to work to defend the use of estriol. And uh, so that from that moment on, uh, I really understood why the gentleman that I worked for thought that it was so important to be involved with and, and to support PCCA because PCCA had this look out for patient care, had this look out for the profession uh, and was willing to be engaged and be a part of that. And I think we continue that now through our public affairs program, trying to keep people informed of the ever-changing regulatory environment and the things that are out there that, that could affect patient access and patient care. Uh, and then also uh, motivating them hopefully to join in and being a, have their voice heard with their legislators and their staff, not only teaching about what they're doing in their compounding practice, but how uh, current events can affect their patients and what they have access to for treatment options. So that being said, Matt, and I'm, I'm gonna kind of shift it back to Amy because you two are regulatory affairs specialists and, and, and gurus, so to speak. And so I want to ask, as a, as a pharmacist and as a compounder and as, a, as someone who's invested in advocacy, what sort of changes have you seen affected or do you have any other perspectives that you could share that kind of give people credence to what we're, what we're trying to make sure that we engage and get that uh, traction? Sure. Great question. Thanks for raising that. So we look back on um, the life cycle of an issue. One of the first things that comes to mind is FDA's memorandum of understanding with the states, right? So that's been around for quite some time and it was just made final um, at the end of last year in October of 2020, it was made final. Now we are in a phase where states are determining whether or not they're going to sign the memorandum of understanding. So what's the backstory? The Memorandum of Understanding went through a couple of iterations. It deals with 
the amount of compounded human medications that can be spent, sent to patients in other states. So right now, as it stands, the MOU that's being evaluated by the states, um, if they sign the MOU, then the pharmacies can continue to serve their patients in other states. There's a reporting requirement that kicks in at 50%. They report some information um, and then they can continue to serve. If the state does not sign the MOU, then no more than 5% of compounded human medications can be sent to patients in other states. So how does that relate back to your question specifically? This version right now, the states are reviewing, is different than earlier versions. Um, you know, it's not without its complications. Um, it's not without its warts, so to speak, but it's a lot more workable than earlier versions that were drafted. Now, if you rewind about four years ago, an earlier version of the MOU would have imposed a hard cap on the number of compounds that could be sent to patients in other states, which would have been very limiting and unworkable for the pharmacies. So while the perfect, while the perf we have not achieved the perfect policy with the current MOU, there has been significant movement to make it a lot more, um, a lot more workable and manageable for the pharmacies. So we're in a situation now um, just to shift gears briefly, where the state boards need to decide if they're going to sign the MOU. And if they make this decision by October of this year, then the pharmacies can continue to serve their patients. And if they don't, that means that they don't sign the MOU, either now or by the deadline, after October, then pharmacies will be able to send no more than 5% of compounded human medications to their patients in other states. So to those pharmacies, those stakeholders who are listening right now, we would really encourage them to reach out to the state board to explain how this policy affects their pharmacy practice, their patients, their physician relationships, and ask their state boards to sign the MOU once they understand the full implications. Now, Matt and our clinical team has worked extensively on this issue for many years. Um, and I'm sure that there's other, just different angles that Matt would like to add and clarify for me. Sure, I think the, the question about what happens with the MOU is um, we're watching this evolve is that states have to do a lot of things to work through that process to figure out can they sign the MOU or not. Sometimes it's not just the State Board of Pharmacy. Sometimes they've got to involve various levels of state government to figure that out. And so that process is not fast. Um, so the time is really now for people to be involved with the MOU if they want to do this. And I, I think the thing I'm always really concerned about is people not being focused on the right number in the MOU. Sometimes they're focused on the 50% threshold. I'm like, well, I don't ship more than 50%, but would always want to bring people back to, no, 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 the MOU, if states don't sign, you get cut off at that 5% limit. That's how much of your human compounds can be sent to patients in other states. And you don't have to be a huge operation that is sending things all over the country. You may be in a smaller state in the Northeast. You may be on the border of multiple states and have patients seeking care from you because you are the one compounder in that, in that region. Uh, you may specialize in a certain kind of treatment and have requests from numerous states. And so uh, more than 5% of your human compounds happens really fast. 
Uh, and so I want to make sure that people are engaging um, their state boards of pharmacy in those conversations uh, quickly, because it may take a while for that process to play out for the state to be able to make that determination uh, about whether or not they can sign. I think you touched upon something really important there. You said the time is now to be involved. And it seems like a lot of people are like, well, we can wait, we can wait. And it seems as though these things, they creep up on us and they just keep building. And with advocacy, it's got to be involvement and engagement today. So it's a very germane point. So kind of- Sebastian, before, oh, yeah. we, before we move on yep. to, to your point about, well, there's still six months left, right? Um, States need a lot of runway, right? To vet this, to all of Matt's points about, do they have the authority to sign? Do they have the resources? And some of these decisions, they just need time to play out, which is why we're really encouraging, particularly pharmacists to go in to tell their story about what the policy means and how it affects the patients they serve. The more lead time that the state boards have, the better off the, the chances are that they will sign so that they can do a complete and thorough review. If this isn't flagged as a priority until later this year in the summer, closer to the early fall, then the likelihood of a seamless transition for lack of a better word in October, it, it becomes a, a much heavier lift. So to the extent those listening can get in front of their board and tell their story right away, I think it will be incredibly helpful through the vetting process as states work through this process. And, and I do kind of want to add that I think it's more important also to focus on the individuals within the practice who are actually being the advocates because the state board recognizes pharmacists to pharmacists and they, they really do appreciate association input and industry input but when you actually have a pharmacy or a registered member of their uh, state board who's coming back to them and telling them the impact and the implications and the insight and expert position to say how it affects business practice and across the entire state, it actually has a little bit more landing of an impact as opposed to a organization saying this might be a problem. It really does have an impact having the individual speak up. And that extends up to even the Congress and Senate and the, the voter position and that response from not only um, associations and industry aspect, but certainly individuals who have the power of voting, which is a crucial piece. So I, I think the, the thing that you touched on, Seb, is that people that are going to be affected by that in talking in the pharmacies, bringing their message to the boards of pharmacy about what is going to happen to the state of patient care is what is needed right now, right? Um, I don't think this is a question about uh, business as much as this is a question about patient access and that patients maintain the ability to use the pharmacy of their choice or their need no matter where they live. You know, the, the, the fact your location should not determine your access to care. And that's what's about to happen if numerous states are unable or unwilling to sign the MOU by this current October deadline, all of a sudden they, there's lots of patients across the country lose potentially access to many pharmacies, uh, depending on what they need. And then we just see that there are pharmacies that specialize in certain treatments. Um, there are compounding pharmacies that serve certain regions of the country. And that may not be possible 
uh, you know, come October of this year, unless people get involved now and then start having those conversations with the Board of Pharmacy rather immediately. That's right, Matt. I agree completely. And for those PCCA members who are listening, I would say please reach out to us at publicaffairs at pccarx.com. We are happy to talk to you more about this and maybe provide some, some background documents that could be helpful in your efforts as you go to reach out to your state board, but we would really like to be a resource for those pharmacists who are either making that outreach to their boards now or who uh, are contemplating it and will be reaching out uh, very soon. So Amy, I'm, I'm gonna come back to a, a critical point, knowing that you made mention earlier of uh, PCCA's Act Legislative Congress and, and this year being a virtual fly-in. Um, it's a significant time of the year uh, not only for yourself, for the department, for the organization, but obviously for a lot of our members. Uh, maybe if possible, give everyone a bit better understanding of what to expect from this type of an event, especially this year, knowing that some of the other items uh, that we already addressed are going to be part of not necessarily the curriculum, but maybe the agenda in terms of talking points. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, first thing I would share or remind folks is that the ACT conference is virtual this year. And the reason it's virtual is that a lot of people are out getting vaccinated, starting to think about um, resuming travel, but the congressional office buildings are still um, in a more restricted state right now where group and meeting access has limitations. So it really made sense to do this virtually for this year. Um, we are very confident and feel good about the framework and the process that we've set up. We have two half days on June 10, 11 for meeting prep, issue overview. We'll hear first from some great speakers. We have invited speakers um, from Congress who we expect to address the group. Um, and we're very much looking forward to it, followed by virtual meetings with lawmakers on June 15 and 16. So, um, so it's kind of a two-pronged approach. We're going to have the two prep sessions issue overview days, followed by congressional visits virtual on June 15, 16. I think from my perspective, who should attend the ACT Legislative Conference, which um, PCCA members, I think certainly if you're compounding for hormone replacement therapy, if you compound for animals, if you ship across state lines, your medications across state lines, or if anyone who's compounding using pure ingredients, that this is really the year to attend the ACT Legislative Conference. The patient access barriers or threats out there are very real. And this really is the critical time to go to meet with your lawmaker and to tell your story. Just by way of background, this past election, there were about 50 newly elected lawmakers to Congress. And if you rewind that to 2018, there were another 100 newly elected lawmakers. So since 2018, more than 150 new lawmakers. So for those folks who haven't made the trip to Washington you know, in person or virtual and gotten to know your lawmaker, now is really the time. With all of this transition and turnover in the Congress, we need to be thinking about grooming the next crop of champions out there who really understand us, who understand our role in healthcare. And this is the time to get in and to build that relationship and then to grow it. So, so what's at stake? You know, we talked about one issue, we talked about the MOU earlier, which is now 
um, in the implementation phase and out at the states. But there are new issues and new threats that that lawmakers need to to hear from their constituents on. And one of them is compounded hormones, right? So many in our profession are familiar with a report from the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine that was issued last summer. I believe it was in July of last year, July of 2020. And that report, we've done you know, separate discussions and webinars on that for our members, but the report contains recommendations that would either restrict or in some cases eliminate access to compounded hormones altogether, which is deeply troubling um, on a lot of levels once you unpack that. So right now we do know that there has been some congressional pushback on that report. Um, it has landed and been received over at the Food and Drug Administration. We don't know exactly what their plans are, what they're going to do with the report and the recommendations. They did issue a statement at the end of last year explaining that it would be used to inform their thinking on compounded hormones going forward. But the recommendations are troubling. Like just to give an example to, to our listeners who are informed on this, one of the recommendations recommends 10 of the most commonly compounded hormones to be considered for the difficult to compound list. So recommending these ingredients, the most commonly compounded ingredients, go through that process of being considered for the difficult to compound list. And just, you know, as a, the red light's flashing here, those ingredients that are on the do not compound list, it is then unlawful for them to be compounded, which means that patient access is gone. And we're talking about some of the very most commonly compounded hormones here, right? So this, what we need now is what we're hopeful to do is that pharmacists will come in and explain the, the types of patients they're serving on these compounded hormones and why it matters and why these recommendations are very troubling. Because once uh, I think stakeholders and lawmakers tend to learn more about our role in healthcare and how these compounds are used, the types of patient needs that are out there. I think that's really the story that needs to be told. And our clinical services team on this one issue in particular has done a tremendous amount of work. Um, so Matt, what are, are your thoughts here? What more would you add here? Well, I think the, the NASM report has been very troubling based on the limited amount of information they stated that they made their recommendations on, right? There was a lot of information submitted to that group, but they're mainly focused on 13 studies. And, but there were hundreds and hundreds of studies and pieces of information submitted to them. And yet from the, that wide amount of data, they took a very limited selection and then came up with recommendations that really are not even coherent when you put them together. <clears throat> Excuse me, when you take the, the recommendation to have limited access and then you take the recommendation to put all these hormones on the difficult to compound list, you end up with no access. So this group made recommendations where that don't go together, frankly. Uh, and I, I think all of us have been involved in the care of patients through compounded hormones and seeing the difference that they make in their lives. And we want them to continue to have access to those treatment options. And the way that that's gonna to have to happen is through interaction with their legislators, making sure the legislators understand the implications of these recommendations and what it will mean for the future of patient care uh, with these compounded hormones. Yeah, that's exactly right. And 
You know, I would just add for those pharmacists who are talking to their lawmakers about this, I, from my perspective, what's really critical is that you just tell your story, tell your story about your patients, tell your story about your practice and who you're serving. Um, there's really no need to get tripped up on the acronyms and, you know, the, you know, getting the names of the agencies confused. I think that people just want to hear about the patients you serve, about your pharmacy, the opportunity to come in and, you know, show off your pharmacy. You're proud of what you've built. You're proud of what you do. You're proud of how you serve your patients and just explain your role in healthcare and then invite them to your pharmacy and offer them the firsthand experience of seeing your practice. And I, I also believe that it's also desperately important to recognize that this is not a partisan issue. This is actually an effort from a patient healthcare perspective, and that involves all aspects of government and all sides of, of the house. So even as a naive Canadian to the US politics, I sort of stand back and I look at it through the lens of this is everyone needs to be aware of this because there's a lot of voices to be heard and there's a lot of voices that are respected. So, yeah, Sebastian, you're, you're exactly right. One of the things that, you know, we, we talk about a lot is that this is not a partisan issue. This is a patient issue. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat, because at the end of the day, all of us at any time are a patient. And that's really uh, what it's about and why we are here. So Amy, that's a really interesting point. And, and you talked about the ability for certain individuals to, to visit local community pharmacies, have a better sense of the scope of compounding, the, the patients that, that our members in compounding pharmacies across the country potentially impact as well. Um, are you able to give a better understanding, knowing that it's a nonpartisan issue, some of the success that you've had on both sides of the aisle and, and, and really looking at the fact of, of even showing what PCCA does and what our role is as an educator, as a support system, and as an API provider. Thanks, Mike. So, you know, we like to be a, a complete resource for PCCA members, right? So a, a pharmacy can join PCCA and have access to everything they need to make a quality compounded medication. And similarly, on the public affairs side, we would like to be a, a resource for congressional offices and for our members and helping make that connection so that the, the education and the background on our role in healthcare and what our members do um, can be articulated so that lawmakers are more informed and hopefully making patient-centered policy decisions because of their experiences. Um, getting lawmakers out to the pharmacy to, to do that tour and to see firsthand how compounding pharmacies uh, work and operate is really a, a priceless experience. It's lasting. Um, when you see the, the, the specialized equipment, the training, the gowning, everything that goes into it. So we really do uh, encourage that as much as possible. It's been a little bit more tricky in 2020 with COVID obviously, um, but we're starting to see more of the in-district site visits, pharmacy visits go on. And I'm hoping that, especially toward August and later this year, that that will pick back up again. It really is critical. So I, go, um, I guess final question for the both of you, um, knowing the importance of our overall public affairs efforts, knowing the importance of ACT, where can a compounding pharmacy learn more about how to attend this amazing event coming up in June? knowing that obviously time is of the essence, we're, we're approaching a deadline as well. So 
uh, almost call to action on behalf of compounding pharmacies to learn more about how they can attend the virtual fly-in. Thanks, Sebastian, and thanks, Mike, for that question. Um, it really is critical. We need uh, everyone to attend this year. It's never been easier. There's no plane ticket to buy. There's no hotel room to book. We just need your time commitment on June 10, 11. But this virtual conference is probably different from other virtual conferences you've attended because other virtual conferences, you can sign up the day before and you're good. They'll send you a link, your materials, and you know, off you go. Well, with ACT, we're scheduling personalized meetings on a platform, an internet platform, just for you. So that requires lead time, right? So we really need, we'd like a month in advance to submit the scheduling request to help get the meeting scheduled so that you get the best quality meeting with the appropriate staff person. So some virtual conferences you can register and do on the fly, right? But with this, it's different because of the level of effort and the meetings involved. We really um, do prefer people to register early. So for those who can go ahead and register in the next couple of weeks by May 14, it is tremendously helpful. It's a really good point. I think from an educational perspective, um, whether it's through a company like ourselves or whether it's through basically absolutely anything that's available on the World Wide Web, in the virtual world, I think everyone has always waited to the very last second to register for absolutely anything because there's no commitment. You don't have to book any travel plans. And uh, I, I think we've all been classically trained that when you see an event date, you're like, yeah, no problem. I'll register the day before and I'll get my, I'll get my web link and I'll sign in from the confines of my home. The, the, the nature of this event is extremely different. I'm really happy that you said that, Amy, because it'll give our listeners a much better understanding, not only of our approach, but the work that we are doing on the back end. I, I think that's what everyone needs to, to understand as well. This is not just learning about regulatory or um, advocacy updates. This is highly integrative, highly involved, and it is designed to make a difference. So by nature, you, you need to get your name in the hat much sooner than the very last day before. Right. Not the day before. No, we need a couple of weeks, ideally, so that the best quality meetings are scheduled. I just want to take a moment and say thank you to our public affairs team. Um, because of the efforts that are behind the scenes that are constantly working to kind of get these opportunities for compounders to, to interface with such important lawmakers in our country, so, or well, in the country and, and abroad. So thank you. Uh, well, that, thank you. Uh, Sorry. I was going to say thank you, Sebastian, for that compliment. I'd be remiss if I didn't share with you that there are many more members of this team here that are not on the call today. So PCCA CEO Dave Sparks, our, our vision, our leadership, Jim Smith, PCCA's president. Of course, we have Matt with Clinical Services, who is just um, really an integral part of the team from a policy analysis perspective, Gus Bassani, and then, of course, Lizzie Harbin, our VP of our program here. Um, you know, the other critical member of the team is all of the pharmacists who invest their time and themselves in reaching out to their lawmaker and maintaining that relationship. We know that the lawmakers who are the most informed, who have visited a pharmacy, they are the ones that are coming forward with these patient-centered approaches. And that's really what we're hoping to continue to develop and to build out patient-centered approaches. Yeah, if I could, I just want to take a minute and encourage anybody that's nervous 
uh, about doing this. You've never interacted with your legislator. You've never interacted with the, the staff of a legislative office. And you're like, gosh, I, I don't think I can do this. Um, I promise you that you can. Um, you are already having these types of conversations on a regular basis when you speak with doctors and telling them your story about what you do and how you want to collaborate with them and work with their patients to serve their needs. It's telling that same type of story to legislators, to their staff, um, and telling them about the, the needs that, you, that, that patients have and how they can help maintain that patient access. Um, and we're gonna give you the tools that you need. Uh, we have this fantastic virtual platform this year that will keep some of those key talking points right there on the screen for you to see when you're having these meetings virtually. Um, so that part should be very easy. Um, we're gonna walk through the issues with you the couple of days that we have. Um, the conference, and I, I promise you that, that you already have this ability. Um, I was, you know, concerned the first time I went to this meeting uh, when I worked in a member pharmacy, and it, it really could not be easier. Um, I promise you, you're going to be one of the experts in the room uh, on your profession and just sharing your story, sharing the, the results that you've seen with your patients through the compounds that, that have been prescribed by their doctors. Uh, and so if, if I can help you in any way or you have questions before you sign up, you know, certainly appreciate uh, hearing from you. Um, but you've got this and we're really looking forward to having you there and be a part of the event. You would also think that in a, a virtual setting, it removes a bit of that intimidation factor of being live and present and, and, and truly being exposed to the overall environment. Um, my assumption is that this would probably feel a bit easier. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you don't have to necessarily walk the halls of Congress if that intimidates you or, or sit in those uh, vaunted offices to, to have some of those conversations. So maybe it's a little bit easier um, this year, but, you know, hopefully uh, next year and, and into the future, we'll be doing that there and uh, taking in all that is D.C., but yeah, this year, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy. You don't have to run from uh, the House offices to the Senate offices to, to make your different meetings, right? You hop on a different Zoom link and share that story and, and communicate that patient need and make your voice be heard. So yeah, it'd be fantastic. You know, I, as our last leave behind, um, something that would be great, Amy, if you can potentially share uh, beyond the hesitancy or, you know, being new, what does it mean for a for a newcomer to the Act Legislative Congress to attend for the first time, and what are some of uh, some of the main focal points that we can use this opportunity as a foundational building block for further conversations? So it goes back to any relationship is needs an investment of your time and your energy, right? For sure. So this is uh, if you're new, this could be the first step where you come in, you introduce yourself, you introduce your practice, you explain the role you play in your patients' lives, and you use it, this opportunity to build the relationship with your lawmaker, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. These relationships take time and they're an investment. So you offer them the opportunity to the invitation to come to your pharmacy, to take a tour, show up at a town hall meeting later in the year, you know, two to three touch points. And those two to three touch points can be PCCA ledge conference, an association ledge conference, or an in-district visit, or um, attending a town hall meeting. But you really do need a couple of touch points to start a relationship, grow it, and maintain it. 
I mean, these lawmakers are hearing, they represent probably close to 800,000 people, right? With the census, that'll change. But they've got 800, 900,000 constituents, roughly, kind of loosely in the house, right? So it takes effort to stand out. If we're just showing up once a year, or maybe we're infrequent and we're there every few years, it's harder to stand out and to be remembered. So like anything, it takes work, right? It's an investment of our time and ourselves. And that's what we hope everyone will be willing to make. So thanks, Amy, for that. I think uh, both of you painted an amazing picture of, of what to expect. And obviously, um, if you do visit our public forum and you would like to learn more about the event, you can simply click on the top navigation bar. You will see PCCA Education. And then under Pharmacy, um, you'll basically see our entire calendar of events. And, and this event that does occur in June um, has its own landing page. You'll have the ability to learn more about the specifics, the content, everything that we essentially covered on the podcast. But any more specifically, if they would, if any of our listeners want to get a hold of our public affairs team, what is the best way to do it? Sure. Thanks, Mike. The best way to, to get a hold of our public affairs team is to shoot us an email at publicaffairs at pccarx.com. Our team will receive it and we will get right back to you. That's, that's probably the easiest way to stay in contact. We rarely show emails, but that, that's obviously the easiest and probably the best way to do it. And once again, to learn more about the educational piece, whether you're a member or not, um, you still have access to reviewing PCCA upcoming education. And it's important for you to, to visit everything through our website at pccarx.com. So thanks again to the both of you. I know Sebastian commented on your body of work, um, the passions that you guys uh, basically abide by and, and allow you and the organization to persevere in a, in a I'm not going to say a difficult world or a challenging world, but there's, there, there's always something to do. And there's always a way that we can hopefully get into the face of lawmakers and explain the, the benefits of compounded medications and and the doctors and patients that we serve. So overall, once again, just thank the both of you for, for being here and for hopefully using our platform to give more education on this topic. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Look forward to having everybody at ACT. So are we. And um, obviously, as Amy shared, uh, time is of the essence. It is, a, it is a situation that if you are interested, please seek out the information for registration um, earlier than the day before, because we, we do make that recommendation overall. But uh, once again, to all of our listeners out there for tuning into this week's episode, for the ability to follow us along on social media to stay up to date with other educational events or offerings, always follow us along on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And obviously visit our website at www.pccarx.com. As always, if this is the first time that you found this podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your local platform so you do not miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delicio, and thanks for listening. <laughs>